0: Welcome to the Purdue Basketball Podcast. I'm Elliot Bloom, joined by the voice of the Boilermakers, Larry Clisby. Today, episode 28 on the podcast, we welcome in Dr. Carson Cunningham, former Boilermaker and uh, current head coach at Carroll College. Uh, Carson, welcome. Thank you very much. I love
1: when people call me doctor. You know, it makes me feel like I'm going to perform heart surgery very soon and I'm hoping it's not on our good friend Larry Clisby. No, I agree with you there. <laughs> Actually you're looking great, man. And uh
0: great to see you guys. now uh, we're uh we're thrilled to have you here. We were talking before we started taping that this was gonna be enjoyable for us because a lot of times and we will talk basketball, it's not just gonna be totally not basketball stuff, but <laughs> Um, a real good chance to get in some other areas outside of basketball and uh, Larry and I are are avid readers so I want to get in some of the books you've you've written and and that kind of thing so um, a little bit background first of all obviously a a former Boilermaker grew up in the region um, started your college career at Oregon State spent a year there and then transferred back to Purdue so talk us talk us through a little bit about your Purdue days here as a player under coach Katie
1: was unbelievable experience uh loved it it it's not all seashell, seashells and balloons as uh mark mcguire wait, 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 who's the great coach of marquette i'm having like a al mcguire mark mcguire was a baseball was, star for the <laughs> oakland <Mark A's>. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay oh
0: my gosh you're up late and you're in it's a not, different time zone yeah right. we dr- we drugged uh, time we time drugged zones. Carson out of bed this morning <laughs> to tape this podcast <laughs> and he's very gracious to do it well, oh mark McGuire,
1: yeah anyway um it's
0: not all seashells
1: and balloons we you know we had tough battles you know i drive coach kate crazy sometimes and sometimes he drive me crazy and but th- as a team we all figured it out and it was ended up just a great experience unbelievable i mean we went into hostile environments and win huge games and it's great to walk into arenas knowing you were well oiled well drilled you're gonna play tough i think coach katie was able to stamp his feisty personality on his team that was maybe his biggest strength as a coach and so i also met my wife here i had a great experience in the history department randy roberts is Mm -hmm. basically like a an institution here at purdue now being here for decades is a celebrated historian author just there was a slew of guys in the history department that were fun and ladies and so anyway it was pretty my look back on my purdue days and it's almost like fantasy land i try to tell our guys like this isn't really how life works you know you walk into <laughs> these cafeterias and you've got food everywhere you walk in you got trainers ready to help you all the time like that's not how it always is
0: yeah we're pretty spoiled we we freely acknowledge that uh, you mentioned great success. You guys had a, a deep run in the NCAA tournament, um, and uh, and then you leave Purdue and you play professionally for three seasons. So talk a little bit about that and continuing your career after college.
1: Well, I had a marginal professional career. I mean, I was. Uh, I remember when my wife and I were uh, having. She was pregnant with our first child. Uh, she would work in Chicago, and I was playing for the Rockford Lightning in the CBA. And uh, I remember the door to my bedroom opened to earth. Um, I lived in a motel. So, um, you know, that, th- those types of things keep you focused. I'm, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I'm going to have a baby pretty soon. Now, my, the door to my room opens to earth. <laughs> like not a hallway, you know, right. my bedroom, not just my house, you know. I'm like, man, okay, I gotta, better figure something out here. But it was fun. Like, the hoops was so good. That's that's the thing maybe people don't understand is like, you basically had 80 players in the CBA, and maybe 15 to 20% get call-ups during the year. And now some of those are repeat call-ups, but you're just playing with guys that have been up and down in the league and super athletic. And the hoops was unbelievable, but you don't have the fan base. You don't have the right. following. Uh, you certainly don't have the training tables and, the, you know, all the – Tutors and the, it's, it's just a different world. It was wild. Wild and wooly. It's like the Wild West of the 21st century. That's the only way I could explain it. You never know if you're going to keep your job. Um, it was just... It was crazy. I wrote a book about it because it was, I had to like digest it all and then work it out. Um, but still, I, I'm glad that I was able to play. Then I played in Estonia. So all my friends are like, I, isn't that the, where the guy from Encino, man? Like... <laughs> originally was I'm like yeah but there's more to it than that and then i played in australia and that was really fun that was like part of australia they call surfers paradise so it was like living in southern california that was a good experience i mean it was all good to do when you're young and then mm, we sure you know
0: so had yeah. you done much traveling outside the states prior to those two uh, stops
1: I'd done a little bit. My family had actually taken a trip to France when I was in eighth grade. I remember I could not believe how few basketball courts France had. I was so annoyed by that. I would walk, <laughs> walk the streets, <laughs> dribbling. I was like, "What's wrong with these people?" And uh, I didn't have much perspective probably at that time. But I um, and then you, we went on a European Big Ten trip when I played at Purdue. So I had been a little bit, but it was definitely it's different when you're living there, you know. And, sure. Um, and those that was a, that was a good time, but uh, it needed to short last a bit of a short time because I had real responsibilities coming down the pipe and living in a motel in Rockford, Illinois, and getting like a five dollar bonus one time. We got like a five dollar bonus <laughs> one time. I mean, literally was just hanging out like five of that. You know, you don't want to be rude, so you're like, you know, thank you. Uh, but you're also sitting there thinking like this: I just got a five dollar bonus. <laughs> Oh so, well, yeah! I mean, that's I remember. You know, I remember one time I I agreed to a deal in principle, and then and then the coach at the time he he wrote my contract and and he cut me by twenty five bucks a week, and it was written in there. And I knew he did it. He was just testing me. He's kind of felt thought that would be. A fool. I guess that's how we rolled, and so I called him on it. And he's like, "Well, you know, you can go." I go, "Well, now it's not that serious. Now, come on now, we're just talking about twenty-five dollars." <laughs> I did. He did write it in, though. Sounds so. like my early days in broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds
0: like everybody's early days in, in something. I think that's part of the price you pay. I had a story when, for, when I was. Price you pay for you. Right? I was interning
2: when I was in college. Uh, actually, the and the professors were great because my senior year that's after I came out of the Army and I was at Kent State and, you know, they'd let me do it and they they let me miss class because I was getting practical experience and I was working with this consultant who was working for this station in Canton, Ohio and he, he had just bought the station in Boynton Beach, Florida. And he came to me and said, hey, I, I'd really like to have you come down and uh, be part of our operation down there. I said, operation? Yeah, he said, now, now here's the deal. I'm willing to pay you. I'm willing to pay you $90 a week. I said, "Wow, ninety dollars a week." I said, "I think I can get one hundred and thirty up here somewhere in the Midwest." And he goes, "Yeah, but it's in Florida, dude. <laughs> you know what I mean?" So you come down to paradise and starve, but we'll provide the weather for you. Did you stay in the
0: Midwest? Yeah,
2: I didn't. I I I, I, I went to Paducah, Kentucky, for one hundred and thirty-three fifty a
0: week. <laughs> that a boy. Yeah. So that's uh, what it sounds like. So. Um, Carson, you just you decide to, I guess, choose a more adult <laughs> path. Yeah, I wasn't making enough said. money to keep, yeah.
1: keep doing what I was doing.
0: Um, did you come now? Did you go back to school then, or did you ju- get into coaching?
1: It was kind of weird. I, I was able to wrap up a lot of schooling because I had a redshirt ear and we would go in the summer and mm-hmm. do a lot of summer school. And then I did some coursework my first year in the cba i played for the gary steelheads okay so i would drive to purdue a lot um for class and um and then and then the next year when i played in rockford uh in the cba for a couple years uh, i would do a lot of writing and research and i could do it um just on my own time and in the summer and you could be more flexible after you get about 33 credits after your masters in the phd program at purdue then a lot of it's really research and writing and meeting with your advisor so your schedule is a little more flexible as far as when you get your work done so i was able to pound that out and finish it up in oh six i my last year of playing was oh five so i i basically i did feel like you know i was able to finish playing and then wrap up my studies largely and and then start working full-time at depaul as a history uh teacher and I really enjoyed that. That was fun, you know. And and we actually, you know, now we had a actual like condo, you know, mm-hmm. my bedroom open to like a living room. <laughs> and uh, we had our first little one. And uh, I really dug that teaching history at DePaul was a ton of fun, neat students. And but basketball, I just kept feeling, man, I want to coach. I remember shortly before becoming the of being able to coach an Andran, I was just gonna volunteer as an eighth grade coach at a local Catholic school. We had had our second child, we had moved back to northwest Indiana. I was still working at DePaul, but I wanted to coach a little bit. I was like, well maybe I'll coach like the eighth grade team locally And my uncle said, you know, I saw an ad in the paper, Andran's looking for a freshman coach, Andrean High School. This was ten years ago and I said, Well that's ridiculous. We have a great tradition we shouldn't have to be putting ads in the paper for freshman coach i want to do that so i went up there and they brought me on and and i loved it and then i started coaching varsity there and and then i told my wife five years ago now you know uh, i think i might want to try college coaching let's just you know maybe i'll throw my hat in the ring some places and she she tells me now she was like okay honey you know that sounds really nice you know, but you're teaching history at DePaul. You coach high school, and then, but like five weeks later, I was like, "Hey, let's go, let's fly out to Montana. I've got this interview." She was like, "Really?" So we ended up in Helena, Montana.
0: And I, I remember when <laughs> I remember when that transpired, and and uh, I don't know if I heard it directly from you or somebody had reached out and said, "Yeah, uh, you know, Carson left uh, Andrean, and it was uh, it was a little bit of a shock, but not really. I mean, if you're going to make the jump." That's the time. Yeah, and
1: you got to find someone who's willing to let you jump. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. It's not easy. And now that I've been in the profession full-time, I realized that was kind of wild. I mean, I didn't have any real connection to Montana. I, I just got lucky. We had a president at Carroll College who really liked the academic side, and the committee really liked that. And then they had only won two games, so they felt like, what the heck? Wow. I mean, we got this goofy resume, but it's kind of interesting <laughs> from Indiana. Let's just roll the dice. What do we got to lose? We just won two. And so, they gave me a shot and I don't, there's, I, I thrown my hat in the ring at other schools and I think several of them, you know, usually you get like, hey, thanks for applying. I think several of them were just like, you know, no response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I'm grateful they gave me a shot. It's been really fun.
2: We'll talk more about that, but I want to go back, if I can, just go back to when he played because some of our listeners, you know, it's surprising. It's only been 16, 17 years, but a lot of people forget. And uh, Carson was a flair guy. He was a guy who – one of the few guys in our program that that had that, uh, you know, that draw power on, on doing things on the court that – probably was adverse to what coach katie would want (laughs) and uh and it was it was really exciting to see i was mentioning last night to our to my guy rob blackman on the network i said i remember this game and you'll you'll remember game a lot more than i do we started a game i think you might have scored the first 11 points of the game or the first 13 or first 10 or something but or had a streak there that was just unbelievable and he was he was going between his legs and he was no look passing and he was shooting threes and he and but he had that flair that was so cool and, and of course that was that was something and I always used to say people don't don't realize you go back to Kevin Stallings and his time with Coach Rose. Kevin Stallings had game now. He had a lot of game, but it didn't it didn't please coaches much. So I guess my question is, you had that, you had to go against that, you had to conform to that and did very well. But as a coach now, because I know paint, you know, paint. He remembers the days. Don't take those shots. Yeah. And he You know, yeah. he did not coach that way. Yeah.
1: No, I, I tell you, uh, our, I tell our guys respect this respect the uh, special play, like the tough pass. But let's say you want to make a behind the back pass or a one handed scoop pass off a pick and roll, or um, I think those passes are very important. I would I would teach those passes, but I also think you need to respect those passes. Like that takes. A lot of time on your own on the court working, so you don't just you don't you know it's like if you're a painter you don't just hop on the easel and start trying to draw up like a, a Van Gogh. Like sure, you got to sure. do some work. Right? Yeah, right. You I think some I'll jump into in. some impressionism. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you got to put a little time in. Right. So that's what I try to tell my guys. Like I love that stuff. I mean, if you want to put a little mustard on the hot dog, you're talking to like the relish and mustard king, but but I also would tell you, you better spend time. I don't want it to feel like this is the first time you've tried this. Like, you show me you're in the, you show that you're in the gym and you've been working on it, by the way, you have a feel for the ball, and we're good to go.
0: I was talking with our new assistant, Steve Lutz, yesterday at our shoot about We were talking about when you played, and we, we were talking about this very topic, and I said, uh, I describe your game as kind of like Steve Nash.
1: Um, I wish, gosh, yeah, I wish it was all the way there. So, a, a but
0: but in terms of like you know, um, getting around the rim, both hands, variety of shots in your yeah. arsenal, dropping it off, dropping it off yeah, for yeah. assists, great yeah. court vision, that whole thing. I think you were very very skilled. Um, you well, know, nice. be able to go both hands and and yeah, yeah, be able I to I shoot it. the ball and all that stuff. So I and you put it. the time in, like you referenced.
1: I worked a ton. I, I did. I spent a huge portion of my childhood playing basketball. I mean, a huge, like I was crazy about it. Kind of. I remember Keith Smart told me when I was 10, he came to a basketball camp. He just hit a baseline jumper to win the NCAA championship for Indiana. And I've been cheering wildly for Syracuse. I love Sherman Douglas and I love his game. And I was not, I was not an IU fan, but he was at this camp and I was thought he was really cool. I mean, I was 10, I think he's 1987. Right. Right. And I asked him, what do you got to do to, you know, become a college player? And he said, you got to play every day. So from like 10 to 21, outside of four days, he said, you got to play an hour a day. I played an hour every day at least. And I didn't count practice. Practice to me was, I didn't want to count practice. I had to do another hour like, oh, yeah, on I my agree. own. And so um, I did work at it, and I loved it. So it's not like I was, you know, it was all drudgery. I loved it. mm mm-hmm. um, but it, one one time, a buddy of mine said, "You know, and he, you you remind me of Nash. You know, but you know well, why is Nash in the NBA and you're not?" I said, "Well, he's a little taller, he shoots a little better, uh, he handles it a little better, he passes a little better.
0: <laughs> I said, well, and then
1: you know, once you add it all up, he's just better. And so, uh, but I did really love playing that style. The one thing I would say." in my era, for whatever reason, and I think this helped Nash in the international game, and I see it when we play international teams big time, we did not learn the pick-and-roll game. I never learned the pick-and-roll game in high school, and I could have taught myself it, I guess, but there's a real art, there's a real nuance to the pick-and-roll game, and it takes time, it takes a lot of time, and I never played, I never learned it, I never played in a system that that was a big part of what we were doing and I would like to have seen how I could have developed in that way. I do think that our players um, at Carroll, we do a lot of pick-and-roll game.
0: And um, I thought we actually saw some pretty nifty action last night. Oh, Absolutely. I, agree. I agree. Absolutely, yeah. we, So we're, as we tape this, this is the morning after uh, our exhibition game, Purdue's exhibition game against Carroll College. And we walked off the floor last night, and when we got in the staff locker room, uh, Coach Painter said they're going to win a lot of games this year. And we were very, very impressed with a lot of the stuff you guys did. And your guys play hard. They, they know what they're doing. Um, and, yeah, and, and that kind of transitions into what I wanted to get to next is the fact that you mentioned you get hired at Carroll. They've won two, two games. Um, you're coming off the, and I think I have this right, the, the two most successful seasons in program history the last two years. Uh, You've made the the Elite Eight the last two years in the NAIA tournament. You were number one seed last year, 29-6 and record last year. Uh, So you've not only come in and kind of found a niche for yourself, but you've had a lot, a lot of success. The guys
1: have done really well. Now, I will say there was one season they won 30 and went to the Final Four. Okay. We're trying to get, hopefully, to the chipper, win over 30. That would be nice. Uh, We have, like, six pre-med guys. We have guys who care about each other. They love hoops. It's low drama. You know, I I actually like playing you guys. I felt that way about your team. Like you guys are just locked in. There's no nonsense on the court. It was just all hoops and it seemed like guys really cared about each other. Like produce bench on some of those big plays just right. going wild. And we feel like we have that too. Um that's been huge. It's a huge part of it. And so uh it's just been fun to see them develop uh we do these uh walkthroughs where you sh- you run plays and you try to finish the play yeah and somehow they develop this thing where no one wants to shoot so they just keep they'll do like 20 30 passes after the play just messing around they're out of bounds you know throwing it overhead to each other and but i love it because they're just passing and that's huge So uh, I actually thought last night. Yeah, it was fun to watch both teams. I I think with all the seniors on Purdue this year, they know what they're doing. Like some of the pop pop swings and the uh, and the look you're looking at the roller, you're hitting the raise, then you're popping it again, then you're looking back in the post. I mean, do you know how hard it is when you're seven two for the defense to just keep rotating out of that? (laughs) Right, (laughs) because you're constantly trying to bring backside help because you were pretty so big. But, yeah, it is fun. It's fun to coach players like that. I felt like it was fun to coach in a game because I felt both teams were just know what they're doing and we're getting after it.
0: So recruiting-wise, talk us through recruiting at, at your level and at your school and how maybe it's different from maybe what the general fan thinks about recruiting.
1: I don't know if it's totally different different than what they might think other than i do think the digital age has changed a ton it's way easier to get um, access to game film and highlights and um, so being in montana i think that helps us Um, it's if you're in a major city maybe you can see a more high volume of players but it's a bit of an equalizer i think in montana the au circuit is a kind of a uh, below the radar a bit so we feel like we've found some players here and there that are totally overlooked. I know if I was coaching at smaller division ones we have two or three players that I think could go yeah and uh, they just weren't recruited so we've been fortunate there um, but we go to similar events you know we'll go to the to, to the bigger Anaheim or Vegas or uh, Seattle or even Midwest events. Um, but we're selling uh, our academic profile big time. We're trying to make sure that guys appreciate the mission of Carroll College. It's a Catholic, had a pre-professional liberal arts school. But, I, you know, I don't know if it's that much different. You got, And then you got you got to talk about how you play, you know, how you approach right. coaching, how you manage people. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. But, I don't know if it's that much different.
0: Have you found recruiting... Uh Recruiting to a two-win team versus recruiting to a oh. 29-win team is different. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay,
1: yeah. Now that's a big deal. Yeah, it's a lot easier now. Yeah. Um, and people contact us a lot more, I think. Um, it's just nice to be able to show them on film or talk about things that we've been able to do. And it's really cool that Purdue will play us in games like this. And we played Utah and Stanford and washington state and cal where uh, coach konzo martin was before going over to missouri that stuff is nice too our guys love these experiences mm-hmm. to play in a big 10 arena challenge yourself against the nation's elite uh, super exciting for us so we're grateful for that um, and helena montana has a lot to offer we, we talk about that too i think when I moved there, a lot of my friends were like, Well, you're going to be ice fishing for dinner? What's going
0: on? <laughs> do you have running water? Yeah.
2: Well, it is a pretty remote place. I mean, that's the first thing anybody says. I mean, all you have to do is look at the
1: population of the
0: state. Yeah, just, know, a, so, just one million. Yeah, yeah it's right. a huge
1: state, the fourth largest in land. Well, think size. about that. Yeah, think yeah. about that.
0: A million people. That sounds absolutely wonderful. Oh, it does <laughs> I mean, to you. That yeah, sounds. I- yeah. That, that, that My dream of retiring to a log cabin with nobody around me sounds... You can that do that Montana. And
1: I, and I tell you, well, I was a little late to the podcast. I apologize. But I'm getting used to just popping in my car and being somewhere in a couple minutes. Oh, yeah. I, in my mind, I was like, oh, you know, Mackie's three-quarters of a mile from our hotel. But then I got to go to the parking garage. And then I got to park around here. Yeah. Which, it's, so, a it, it's a lot different. It's a
2: lot different here now than even when you were here. Yeah. So yeah. it
1: is look amazing. I walk campus... I walked Purdue campus, unbelievable. I know people talk about it, but for someone who comes here, you know, not as often, and I didn't get to see the whole breadth of campus the last time I was here, unbelievable changes. Yeah,
0: I was going to ask you, we talked about it a little bit last night, uh, or before, uh, after your shoot-around yesterday, just the Purdue growing leaps and bounds, and just, you know, it's even our guys who graduated two years ago, they come back now, and they can't believe their eyes, all the changes in the buildings and everything yeah, else. Yeah,
1: I, I walked through the co I was like this is so different and then the um, upper class housing near the co-rec and then i follow purdue closely uh, like on a lot of the science and tech that it's developing mm-hmm. and a lot of the cool things we're doing uh, in just entrepreneurial stuff i mean it's crazy what's going on at purdue so to see it physically is unbelievable to read about it is awesome i think Was it Forbes or U.S. News that had us as the fourth best public university Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the nation? Unreal. And uh, so it's. I certainly feel a lot of pride when I come back and think, man, this is where I went. This place is awesome.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. So I want to get into. uh, We were close, and I are very excited uh, to talk about your uh, your career as an author. Um, Five books now under your under your belt. So. when did you first start, when was your first book, when, when did you start writing your first one?
1: Well, my dissertation was on the history of U.S. Olympic basketball, and then I turned that into a book in '09 with the University of Nebraska Press. That was a, a project that was recommended to me by my advisor, Randy Roberts, who's okay. been you know, professor of the year in the state. He's super well-published and just, as I've mentioned, a stalwart, long-time uh, historian at Purdue, great, great guy. And so... That was a fun project. You just—I started in 1936 Olympics, which really isn't that long ago. I mean, it's not that long ago, right? You know, and what, what are we talking about? 81 years. Um, it was played outdoors. It was played with a ball that was like more sewed together, like a old school soccer ball, and stuffed, looked like it was stuffed with like feathers. Um, and it was 19 to eight. You know, the U.S. beats Canada. Wow. And it's only eighty-one years ago, and it's the Olympics. Right. You think of how far we've come is out of this world. It's so, just going through each Olympiad, learning about the players, did great interviews. Interviewed Pete Newell, uh, John Wooden, uh, Larry Brown. Just, just was able to immerse myself in the history of the game, and it gets into so many other topics. The rule changes. You know, America drove so many of the early rule changes in basketball and international scene, and all those rule changes. I mean over 90% of them wanted to promote a fast and creative game a lot like America itself mm-hmm. and how it rolls and so it was fun to draw those connections and see the intersection of things like sports and and business you know you have uh, Phil Knight developing Nike over time but as he was developing that project he met with a guy named Onitsuka who was a Japanese shoemaker he had fought in World War II they had lost and he didn't know what to do after the war he decided I'm going to start making shoes he makes tigers which are basically the Asics and 20 years later he gets a young American undergrad to come over there and they're trying to figure out things together on shoes and he was the, Onitsuka was the first to put the suction cup uh, pivot point in the shoe I don't know if you guys remember the old shoes they'd have the little circle on the bottom yeah, and you could yeah. pivot and he got that from eating octopus one night and uh so then, just to see how this, how this shoe, basketball shoe industry evolves, and there's so many different angles to take in that project. So that was the first one, really fun. Did a Cubs book with Randy Roberts. It's more of an anthology, like a reader. And then I wrote a fun like book for boys and girls age like nine to thirteen on the adventures of Huckleberry Finn in the 21st century. So I brought Huckleberry Finn back to life. My wife was like, "Well, you're a confident man." You just you just brought Huckleberry Finn back to life. It's Mark Twain, it. Yeah, it's Twain, Tackles Twain. Yeah. Yeah, right. So
0: where, where, what was the inspiration for that? How did you come up with that?
1: Well, I, that's a great question. I don't totally remember, but I do remember thinking there was this weird story. This is a true story. This is crazy. For like eight to ten years, someone dropped a small piece of garbage in my parents' yard every morning. And I'm not messing with you. And I'm not talking about like for a month or a couple months. I'm talking like a huge chunk of my childhood. Well, really, it was actually like when I was like 12 to 20. So I was at Purdue. I'd come back from Purdue. I'd be like, "Did the did the trash man drop again today?" And if we didn't pick it up, they wouldn't drop. So we could leave it there for like eight days. But if we picked up the garbage the next morning, there'd be garbage in our yard. It was so weird. It could just be the top. That is incredible. It was crazy. It, was, it could be the top of a McDonald's cup. It could be a Mountain Dew. It could be anything. Uh, but there was something there, and uh, and so I I kept you know I had all these theories, and we would uh, you know we would do lookouts, but then people would fall asleep, and so then I built this whole story around it, and then I thought, and then I wanted to do it. It got into this whole you know looking at modern American culture. And one day I was like, what if Huck Finn was just observing all of us and just wondering, what in the hell is going on here? And I mean, there's a ton of positives, don't get me wrong, but he's just from a different era. So anyway, sure. I, I so I brought him back to life and I had him settle in, you know, set up shop on his own in, a, in the dunes, living on his own. And he, he joins up with a little gaggle of boys who were playing football. They're like 12 years old. And, you know, and then they just... They have to ultimately solve this mystery of what's going on with this trash, which has these other stories. So anyway, it was fun. It was fun. My daughter's read it like four times, and she reads everything. That
0: so, is awesome. Oh, that's yeah. very cool. Well, my daughter my daughter's a, will surely be arriving in that window, so I'll, I'll yeah, put yeah, that on yeah, her yeah, list. Think about it. think about it. She's an avid reader as well. So very cool. Um, did, you, did you enjoy the historical books more than or did you like the the fiction oh man that's
1: a good question i think it depends uh overall i really like doing history but the fiction was fun you're so you're so freed up yeah so freed up to just start riffing and playing around with stuff so that's fun but um this last project fallen stars that was deeply moving it was it was uh so I, I think I like them both. I'd probably try to mix it up here and there if, I, if I'm if i able to keep writing. I don't know.
0: So talk about your more, most recent one now, Fallen Stars, and give us the background on that. So Fallen Stars, that looks at five American athletes who died in military
1: service. And I was inspired by the story of Pat Tillman, who a lot of people certainly my age bracket are closely familiar with. He was like, you know, got the most attention really in in, in their, when we were in our early 20s and the mm-hmm. early 2000s. He was kind of like, a guy who got just a huge amount of coverage and pretty much everyone, no matter what your background or your political views or pretty much everyone could find things that they really thought were neat about Pat Tillman. Um, his courageousness, his willingness to take a stand, obviously his athletic prowess. Um, and then, and his willingness to, 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 to wrestle with a lot of tough questions. You know, should I join the military after 9-11? Uh, what should you do as a young adult when it comes to, like, bigger political, geopolitical issues? Um, should you just focus on your family and try to make a good living and and appreciate that? And, you know, all these things I think a lot of people wrestle with. So anyway, I found his story very moving, and I thought, well, wow, what other young adults might have been nationally renowned athletes who decided I'm just I'm going into the military for them at that time making a stand for the American experiment was what they thought they needed to do and then they and then ultimately paid uh, with their lives from that service and I just started looking at people and I found Ham Fish the second he was the first rough rider killed in the Spanish-American War and that's 1898. Then Hobie Baker, uh, to this day, the Heisman for hockey is called the Hobie Baker Award. It's to the nat- nation's best hockey player. He was also a big-time Princeton football player. He died in World War One as a fighter pilot, which, you know, we take fighter pilot for granted, but he became a fighter pilot, in five years before that, the plane had gotten wheels. So
0: this is pretty yeah, early. yeah.
1: And then Niall Kinnick in World War II. He's the only Heisman Trophy winner to die in World War II. Of
0: course, Iowa, the Kinnick Stadium, where Iowa plays football. Kinnick Stadium, Iowa, yeah.
1: And uh, I had had overlooked this, but in 1939, he didn't just win the Heisman. He won AP Athlete of the Year over DiMaggio and Joe Lewis, who went undefeated undefeated in three bouts that year. And then uh, he died as a fighter pilot as well in 1943. And then... Bob Kalsu. He was the only NFL player to die in Vietnam. He died in oh, 1970. Wow. Yeah, he was a Offensive Rookie of the Year for the Buffalo Bills. He had been an All-American lineman in Oklahoma. He had won the Orange Bowl in his senior year. And uh, had extremely emotional interviews with his widow, Jan Kalsu. And uh, his story, was, I mean, she, she now had said a prayer before he left for Vietnam. And it, there, there were some... At different points, he could have very likely gotten out of the whole ROTC commitment. He had gone to Oklahoma as a land grant. At that time, then you're plugged into ROTC, mm-hmm. and then after two years, you could kind of exit. He stayed, and then the professional athletes had ways to either get kind of sure stateside some kind of deferment, yeah, or or stateside United. service, or get the National Guard. Get kind of yeah, working. a lot of
2: times. And I was in in that period, sixty-eight to seventy, during Vietnam and you know I got sent to Okinawa so I was lucky um, just by chance but being a draftee but the point is I ran into many places where I went were uh, a few professional athletes that basically were assigned to bases to play basketball or to play football and you'd see them and you know the only guys that I noticed that Really, were on edge, and especially in Okinawa, because I did play sports for nine months over in baseball and basketball. But the, I noticed that the Marines played harder, and I always wondered, you know, why. And you know, I asked, and they'd all look at me and say, "Well, you know, they picked me out of here because this is a oh, prepa- really? this is a preparatory place before we go to Nam, and obviously, if we can hit some home runs or run the ball oh, yeah. or block a little better, we're going to stay here for a while." And we're not going.
1: Interesting. Yeah,
2: you know, so they, they took it a little more seriously than the Army guys or the Air Force guys who were assigned to that island, and that was going to be their duty for, you know, perpetuity. So, yeah, it's a big difference. But I ran into a few. I mean, I ran into a few athletes that were, you know, assigned here and assigned in the States to play basketball or do whatever. And so, yeah, you're right. You, there was There were opportunities that you wouldn't really be in combat if mm-hmm. you didn't want to be.
1: And he didn't, you know, and he he didn't choose any of those. And he just said, you know, where they put me, they're going to put me. And, you know, I don't blame people who looked at Vietnam and said, I'm not trying to get there. And it wasn't like he was actively trying to get there either. He just felt like, okay, where they sent me, they're going to send me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my job the best I can. He wasn't, a, from what I can tell, and in talking to his widow, Chan, he wasn't, like, super political about all that. But he was... He had a special ability to connect with people. I mean, even when you read uh, interviews of the enlisted men that he, that uh, he served with, you. I talked to players he played with at Oklahoma. I talked to a a guy who was like three or four years younger than him when they grew up in Dell City, Oklahoma, and how he just took him under his wing. But everyone was like, "This is a gentle giant. This is just a kind person." And he, and even um, so, so Jan says a prayer before he leaves. You know. They had had a daughter, she was about one, said if if his life's taken, can we have a son? Well, sure enough, a few months later when he's in Vietnam, she finds out she's pregnant. Due date is July twenty one, nineteen seventy. As it as it turns out, that's the day Bob Kalsu is killed on uh, in the Battle of Ripcord and but she has the son on July twenty third, and that's the day that the army soldier tasked with telling oh, her my. that her husband passed, oh, has, my has to come to the hospital, goes to the home first and her parents have to say, well, she's in the hospital. So he comes there and she's telling me the story. We're both crying. It's just like, it's unbelievable. And, and then I'm doing more interviews over time and learning about Bob Kelso And I just, I'm telling you, I would write sections of just crying. Um, And now his two children have grandchildren and, They've raised a great family. and But your heart does break. You wish he could see it all. Sure. And, and the most frustrating thing about Vietnam is, like, we left that hilltop that he died on two days after he died. And it's like, why were we there? I mean, Nixon was drawing down troops dramatically each year. We went from, like, 500,000 to 100,000 in four years. So we knew we were exiting, you know, and... We were going to try, I mean, in, in his view, leave South Vietnam, some chance of keeping the North at bay, but it right. wasn't really that realistic at, at that point. So why are we setting up this fire support base ripcord in this very difficult valley, and then it gets really hot, and we leave? And, you know, they had been ambushed for 21 days, facing terrible fire, and everything the U.S. tried... the north vietnamese had an answer because they knew they had planned it for a long time we just we weren't we didn't know uh, how close they were to everything that they had communications lines right next to the mountain. it was you're just like why are we there you know he shouldn't have been there really as you feel and then um but it was it was a deeply moving part of the book but
0: a lot of stories like that in the project um really when you look at all the guys did you um, did you do? Have you watched the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam? Not yet. I Good. need
1: to, but it came out right when we started practice. Yeah. So I I need to. Probably. I was
0: watching that late at night with our schedule cranking up as well. But it was unbelievably yeah. Well I've done. Heard as we would expect from Ken Burns. But when you wrote this book, did you purposely try to get athletes from different wars or different time periods, or did that just how it worked out? No,
1: I did want to go. Through time, I wanted to see how these athletes were covered in the popular press, how America might have responded to them, what differences there might be from one era to another. Uh, I wanted to look at different wars. So, you know, and it it, sure didn't
2: run out of them, did you?
1: No, then there were differences. I mean, so a little bit more reticence and it seems like a little hesitance to get into some of the more personal things nowadays. Like with Tillman in the internet, you can get so much information so quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also see in all of them, uh, celebrated in the press, their courage, um, athletic prowess, uh, and their willingness to take a stand. They all, like if you look at the guys, we march geographically almost from east to west, starting the northeast, go to uh, the Midwest and Iowa, go to the Great Plains, and with Tillman in California. It's kind of like the march of the mm-hmm. country in a way. Again, different political views. We have some Protestant um, uh, backgrounds uh, with Fish and Baker. Uh, we have Christian Science, kind of a New Age religion with Kinnick. Catholic for Bob Kalsu, kind of agnostic. Some would say Atheist for Pat Tillman. You got a lot of different religious views, a lot of different political views. But all of the guys truly had a deep and abiding appreciation for just the basic um, values of the American experiment. Just, you know, freedom of religion, freedom of press, right to vote, just, wow. you know, individual universal rights. And I think we share that a lot more in America than the media likes to talk about. Like, it, it, you know, it sells to say we're all divided. and Right. But it, really on those things, we're not divided.
0: And you only hear from the outliers, yeah. Like somebody that's somebody that's a lot more um, uh, tolerant of their fellow man doesn't get on Twitter yeah. and say, "Hey, I'm tolerant." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you're all you're all cool. I'm tolerant. Yeah. It's not, the you're it's, not getting retweets, right? You know, it's the it's the outliers that are the vocal ones, and and, and I think and, the uh, media
1: likes that nowadays. You so you just see you see more of that kind of stuff. Yeah. These other guys, you saw a lot of respect, even if someone. Didn't agree with the war agree with their political views and so that was very interesting.
2: Well, I know about Nam I mean you just uh, You know you had to remember that we were the Sons of guys that were in World War two and so you so the the common theme was especially being the first to be drafted <coughs> Is that hey you go and you do your job. You, you don't have too many choices I mean you had a chance to go to Canada or go to jail Mm-hmm. Those aren't two really good options, <laughs> right. and so and I can remember. I mean, I remember, and this is nineteen sixty eight. This is just after Tet Offensive in nineteen sixty eight. I mean, like you said, you got a half a million guys in Vietnam. Your dad was there, Elliot's dad. Uh, um, you know, I was I was resigned to the fact that I was going to die, and I'm, ser- I'm not I'm not kidding about this. I'm serious. I said, there's no way I can survive this. I mean, I'm going there and this is going to be it so everything i did leading up into that i got married um you know i you know i don't know i mean because because you saw it
0: but but but, but your
2: number one thing the number one thing you thought of i'm going to go do what they want me to do and you go but the problem was as you went and then you start to live that experience Then, like Carson says, what are we doing? That question comes to you. And then all of a sudden it's like, really? What are we doing? And to the guys that I talk to, and these aren't always professional soldiers. These are guys that have been drafted. Their idea was, I'm going to try to figure out a way to survive. And now we're in a whole different dynamic. Mm You know, if we're going out and uh, search and destroy stuff, we're going out, and we're not. We're searching for toads. We're not searching for people,
1: you right. know. let's get back. Well, it was extremely scary. Thirty-six thousand American troops died over thirty-six thousand in nineteen sixty-eight. I mean, think about that. That's a, that's just an insane number. Right. Number. It's an insane. That's such a short time ago. Yeah, it's not you know, that long mean, ago. Not long ago at all. I mean, but that yeah. I mean, that's just that's the that's like Purdue is like thirty-eight thousand. I mean, it's just—it's yeah, it crazy. It's—it's right. it's insane. So, so, but a lot
2: of guy, you know, a lot of guys came home or survived they are just saying, you know, why were we there? And of course, we made the—all of us, I think, made the pledge that we don't want to do this again.
0: Yeah. Oops. Yeah. Well, and and the first war that really was covered media from a media standpoint right. in an unbiased way. Um, I the more books that I read, just read a book on Eleanor Roosevelt, and all these um moments in history that the media was told don't run this and they comply it was like yeah fine this is in the interest of you know what we think is best for morale the country was always you know the tagline in world war one and two and the media like you know yep we got you and they didn't tell the whole picture like i'm not saying that would have changed per- perception of those wars because i think those those might have been a little more just but um it's different. Like, that Vietnam was Vietnam the one that was just, different. the way it, it was covered. And
1: part of it was, I don't think the U.S. Uh, leaders thought it would be such a quagmire. So they were pretty loose mm-hmm. with what they let embedded people do. Now, they tightened that up after 68 when mm-hmm. they started to lose Cronkite and the rest right. of America. But um, the other thing about Vietnam that's wild is the average age of the soldier was like 21, 22 instead of 26 in World War II. And so man, just young guys, um, tough, tough war, and, but when you work on the book, you also try to see, like, the bigger picture things about these guys, and not, not just that they died, I mean, obviously, that's a tragic part of it, and it's brutal, um, but there, there were, um, many things about each guy that you just cherish and see that, um, have rippled through America, and that that was neat. That's uplifting, even though you're dealing with, uh, you know, a tragic story.
0: So, for our listeners who have, and I'm I'm ready. To, I'm ready to read the book tonight. What? How do we get this book? It's up on uh, Amazon. That's probably the easiest okay. way. Um,
1: there's some bookstores like University Bookstore here, and uh, right right across the street from Arena. Perfect. They, they have it, um, and so. There's just a lot of different local bookstores in different areas. A lot of a lot of places in Montana are picking it up. So but awesome. the easiest way is go to Amazon. And
0: and it's gotta be um, it's gotta be satisfying for you as an author when you you put all this work in and it's obviously something you're passionate about. But then um, do you hear from people from time to time that read your book and read any of your books?
1: I do, that- I do. I heard from a soldier, a special op soldier serving in Afghanistan he read under belly hoops and he just sent me an email. And he said, man, thanks for writing that. And I'm over here in Afghanistan. I really was laughing, and I loved that book. And uh, Just thanks for writing it. I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, you are, you're you're like, special ops Afghanistan. That
0: is awesome. The, I'm man.
1: like, thank you, man. I'm glad. Hopefully it just gave you a little few moments of a little peace and a little entertainment and with what you're doing. That That's really moving. The other thing, real quick, like Niall Kinnick, we've got a lot of Big Ten fans. So the University of Iowa has digitalized his papers. I I went to Columbia and Princeton and has Holby Baker papers, and those aren't fully digitalized. But Iowa didn't have to go. to digitalize everything. It's unbelievable. So you can read these letters that now Kinnick is writing to his family while he's serving. And shortly before he died, he wrote a letter to his mom and dad, thanking them for how they raised him and telling them how great it was to have seen them on, on leave recently. And then he has this... The whole section where he had spent a recent night on leave near Boston before going back out to train in the, in the waters as a, fighter, as a fighter pilot. And he says, you know, Mom, I would really love to share a dinner with you at this restaurant. And he explained the restaurant and the m- meal. And he said, and then I would love to just dance a waltz with you. And thank you so much for how you guys raised me. And then he ends the letter. He says, if I don't make it, can you, any money that you get from my death, can you put it towards my little brother's education? And that's what they did. And I'm sitting there reading these letters. And I'm like, if one of my kids can write in their early 20s, write a letter to my wife or me like that, I mean, that would just be amazing. And so I, I think, even though I knew I'd be impressed by these guys probably and looking at their lives, I was blown away at. How mature they were, how how deeply they thought about things, and how they were able to show gratitude at, like, the age of 21, 22, and do it in a really touching way. You know, I don't think I did enough of that when I was 21. Right. So, anyway, I hope that comes across, because for me, I was like, man, I, I felt so grateful to have spent time with these guys. And if anyone reads the book,
0: to me, that's just
1: dessert. That's gravy. Sure. I already feel... Like it was really time well spent.
0: Well, "Fallen Stars" is the name of the book, and uh, and I know a lot of we've we've been uh, we've heard from a lot of people who read our pod or listen to our podcast that uh, they're they're big history fans. They know Cliz and I are as well. Final question before we get to the final four segment here to wrap things up: What's your favorite period of of history?
1: Well, I think because of Brandy Roberts' influence here at Purdue, he's really big in World War II. He's also immersed in film history especially in the 1930s and 40s and i'd say those areas i find very intriguing probably because of that movies like casablanca and tying tying them to the history of the times and the culture that's that's really to me probably my favorite it's hard to pick but i'd probably go there
0: Very cool. Okay, our final four. These are four questions that we ask every guest on the podcast here. Imagine that.
2: Guess what the first question will be.
0: Well, that's actually question number two. But oh yeah, that's two. Okay, so (laughs) question one is: What is your go-to music of choice?
1: It is more and more it's country, guys like Luke Bryan and Zach Brown, right? Mm -hmm. I do. I'll stream country stuff and Is, I've been doing a lot of like female 70s country really you can go to YouTube and do like 70s country
2: no line. no 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 like uh like uh like who like um you know not Dolly Parton or yeah some, yes the yeah. Old, like, old old country Dolly's or Loretta various, Lynn like, yes. yes
0: Loretta Lynn Tammy yeah. Wynette yes Tammy Wynette
1: yeah Hank Williams then Cal was, Smith Cal Smith yeah. hello country bumpkin
0: you yes. got frost on your pumpkin <laughs>
2: because i was a disc jockey then doing country are you serious? in the 1970s yes. were you really yes yeah yes.
1: so if you go to youtube and i wish i knew more of the guys i should know and the gals but you can just get a stream for like 120 minutes of great 70s male country songs and i'll just let them play wow and then you can do female because you know how songs. that happened
2: we were doing top 40 and a guy calls me in and he says sit down he sits in the chair and he says by the way Monday we're gonna to switch to a country format and I looked at him. I said, this is our owner Down in Paducah, Kentucky. I looked at him. His name was Ed Fritz. I said, Mr. Fritz, I don't do country and He said, well, you know that then you don't have a job. I said, well, I do country <laughs> I
1: just started <laughs> so doing country. buddy. I started doing
2: country. He said Larry, it's the same way you just intro everything the same It's just different artists. And I can remember I mean, I just remember so clearly that first day when I'm I'm throwing that stuff on there and I'm thinking <laughs> no 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 and i guess probably two weeks later yeah babe. here yeah, we go here's stuff. tammy whinet yeah. here we
1: go yeah, yeah so i'll be jamming out writing reading watching film to like yeah. 1970s country there you go. but
0: that country is completely different from oh yeah modern Complete, yeah. completely, yeah. completely yeah. different yeah some of the i guess i don't want to if you call them music snobs but they would much more oh, mean, have you're a talking, much better appetite oh you're for that talking about owens Yes.
2: I mean, I mean, you're talking. Yeah, yeah, gu- yeah I mean, you're yeah, talking guys. Right. I mean, these I are think, all old Opry fans.
1: Yes, I mean, you can see that connection even to Woody Guthrie. Yeah, it's, exactly, it's exactly. Not, yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I think because living in Helena, there is a old school country and new school. Sure. And that old school, they have a station, and like there's a real culture
0: connected I'll be to that. Yeah.
1: I think maybe that's influenced me. I don't know.
0: That's 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 a great answer. Okay. Uh, what is the your favorite book? Or the mo- one of the most recent books you've read that you would... Favorite book is of.
1: definitely Huckleberry Finn. And I've read Huckleberry Finn probably 10 or 11 times. So I started in maybe 6th or 7th grade. I think I've read it every 3 or 4 years since. And Huckleberry Finn, I don't read a lot of books over again at all. I mean, usually yeah, I just read a, a book. book. I don't write. do that. Yeah. But Huckleberry Finn, I do. And I've gotten something out of it at every different stage of life.
0: That's awesome. Are you a big Twain fan in general? Huge Mark Twain fan. Me too. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've read several books on him, and just he was so ahead of the time. So many of his quotes are so applicable. Unbelievable. It's it's amazing how yeah. uh, well they translate over the, so the course of time. So have you been to Hannibal? Um, I have not. I okay. have been. I Have, have been. you been there? Yes.
1: Oh, I, I highly recommend it. We went there as a family. It was just immerse yourself in Twain.
2: I went a long time ago, though. I mean a long time ago, but I remember Really yeah. well. Yeah. I remember how hot it was. Yeah. It was in the summer. It was in August, and being there on the river, and yeah, it was like really cool. Yeah, they got that
1: remade steamboat. You can go by Jackson Island. I think they call it. You can. It's a museum. There's Huck Finn. What they think was the cabin that uh, the character upon whom uh, Twain based, likely based uh, Huck Finn. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a little cabin there. That guy's name is Tom Blakenship. I have been to the Montana Historical Society to try to find him because there's a rumor that he ended up a justice of the peace in the state of Montana. Really? But about every, every year or two, a graduate student in either literature or history, I have now since learned, tries to hunt this guy down in Montana. So the lady gave me all the background and all the searches and no one can find him wow but it's the tom blakenship the guy who huck finn was based on by twain a guy a guy in the neighborhood that
0: twain grew up with anyway very cool yeah that's outstanding okay uh what other profession other than being a coach or author if you could wave a wand and do tomorrow what would it be
1: oh that's a great question i should have mentally prepared for your final four (laughs) we Um, never let people do that okay um Oh man, you know that I do at times have daydreams about just like being, <laughs> being like a, like a water, or adventure, or like surfing or fishing, just like a a, a excursion guide like in the caribbean <laughs> like, Oh no, no, that's that's like, that like be, i could th- think of that a would lot be a good job yeah you know, that like that just sounds... run fishing trips and, sure and and maybe some you know sport craft like water boat stuff yeah
0: if you've ever rented a boat anywhere doesn't it seem like the guy driving the boat is just the coolest guy in the world yeah. like he's got no cares he's got no cares he's like out oh, here yeah jump in yeah oh, like yeah, our man make, yeah. like our
2: man max and uh our man max yeah, in italy, lake como in, in italy. italy yeah
0: <laughs>
1: You're right. That that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Sometimes I need a little bit of that. Like they seem like the
0: most <laughs> stress-free people on the planet.
1: Yes, and yeah. I've always looked at those people and say, how ah, does that happen?
0: Right. Uh, I think so you I do think this they for have, a living. I think they have more guts than the average person to be able to just say, that's what I'm doing, and yeah. do it. And like they, it's like they've got something figured out that we haven't figured out. Like we're get we're we're going to. Them it's, called relieve resp- our stress. it's called
2: responsibility. We've been sold on it. Someone told us that this is the way you do it, and we do it. But these cats don't. They got
0: figured out, and they got it out. Yeah, right. And so we
1: go to them. You're right. We go yeah, we go to them. Our stress. And they just
0: and we get off, and we go back to our lives, and they sit there and laugh. Yeah, and they just look at us. About you, who's next? You suckers. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, what uh, final question here on the final four with Carson Cunningham? What is one thing that no one or not many people know about you? You know, I, I. I bet
1: a lot of people don't know I met my wife here, but this is really cheesy, but it's totally true. The I I we were we had gone kind of on some dates. We went to a plant sale. We did some you know we went through, did a few other things, and I kept thinking, okay, well, I really like this gal. Like, okay, I gotta try to make a move and let her know. I don't want to get in the friend zone. it has been a couple weeks, so we were doing something in Mackey, and we were about to walk uh, out to you know out to campus, and I thought okay i gotta make a power move so i said can we walk out to mackie for a little bit onto the court and i walked her out to half court and i asked my wife now we have five kids i said can i give you a kiss and she said yes so my first kiss for my wife was on half
0: court at mackie wow not many people now not many people can say that Yeah, and it's
1: kind of you know some people be like well that's cheesy well it's cheesy it was awesome that is great that's
2: great yeah absolutely
1: that's fantastic. Boy, I have
2: well, to, I have to tell you, I mean, we're at the end of this thing, but it's been a pleasure having you. It really has. It's thanks, been a pleasure guys. seeing you. I appreciate we're proud it. Of you. I feel the same. I, well, I
1: love Purdue. I'm going to enjoy listening to you all and watching watching the staff go to work and listening to you call games. It's fun it's a great part of the winter that's for sure
0: and we'll be we'll be watching you we're big fans uh, as a staff we we follow you guys um, all season um we've got the purdue basketball family several people in and around college basketball we follow everybody but we always uh we always keep tabs on you guys and best of luck this year i think you guys are set for another really good year and Hopefully, uh, we'll get you back on here when that next book comes out. <laughs> thanks, well, man. you just—I mean, things are going to look up for you now because oh, be prepared. Now, good. be prepared to handle the financial <laughs> the success the that's going to come.
2: The spike is going to come. I'm excited. We heard about this li- Cunningham dude with all of huh? our listeners buying oh, yeah. up
0: these books now, which I hope—I sincerely hope they do. I know that when we're done here, when I grab lunch today, I'm going across the street to get my copy. So, well, Thank thanks you again, for the Carson. Time. Thank you
1: so much. Yeah, we it's really appreciate. it.
0: Okay, that was episode twenty-eight here on the Boiler Ball podcast. Thank you, thanks uh, everybody for listening as normal, and uh, until next time, be curious, be informed, and be well.